0: position. It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit.
1: The big electron, the big electron. Oh. So I have cheated very badly, you see.
2: What are we talking about? here?
1: There are monsters out in the cosmos
3: that can swallow entire stars. Nothing is more seductive. Nothing. Yeah. Mr. Krebs, are you feeling it?
0: Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing,
3: get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We've got a great job for you tonight. Let's get right to it.
1: All right, welcome to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. We're happy that you're here. We have a great show for you tonight. Uh, We have another special host, um, guest. We have a guest. um, You do have
3: another special
1: host. (laughs) 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 You are special, Anheita. Of course, of course you are special. Um, We're glad that you guys are here listening to us. Um, And just to remind you that if you have any comments or questions for us or for uh, the guests that we have tonight, uh, you can reach us here on studio at 573-882-8262. You can also text us at that same number, or you can find us on our Facebook page where we are, The Big Electron.
3: So today we have Mm -hmm. with us Dr. Robert Walker, who is in the anthropology department here at the University of Missouri.
0: That's right. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for
3: coming. Um, Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your research?
0: Yeah, well, I'm an anthropologist, and uh, I do most of my research in lowland South America. And my latest fascination has been trying to use remote sensing to figure out what we can learn about these groups of people, uh, indigenous societies uh, that are sort of tucked away in far corners of the Amazon forest, that have limited contact with the outside world. So we call them isolated tribes.
3: Okay. So how, uh, I guess my first question is how isolated is isolated?
0: Well, uh, sometimes in the media you hear this, this term uncontacted. Um, and then that causes lots of confusion because there's an overflight or something done by the government. And these Mm -hmm. people might be holding a steel machete and people are like, how can they be on contact if they have a steel machete? Mm. Um, So there definitely is some contact and that's why I prefer this term isolated because it kind of is a little bit fuzzier because most of these people do have some contact with the outside world. It just tends to be very temporary and it's often hostile Hmm. and there hasn't been a sustained, peaceful, hey, we're friends with the outside world kind of contact. Hmm. right? So it's really short term um, and and, and often tends to be violent. So they get these steel machetes from, usually stealing them from their neighbors.
1: I see. So when you say um, they have hostile contact, you mean they are hostile to the groups that they decide to contact with or the groups come in and are violent towards them?
0: Okay, so it works both ways. Um, so if they want to go and steal machetes from their neighbors, either maybe settlers, Brazilian or Peruvian settlers that are nearby, they might go and steal uh, you know, clothes or machetes or something like that, and that can be hostile. People get in the way. People get shot. Um, but the the worst problem and the problem that we worry most about, sort the survival of these groups, is violence coming from the outside. So, uh, the outside world's very much sort of knocking on their doorstep. You know, we have drug trafficking going on, uh, logging, mining, almost all of it illegal. And when these loggers, miners, or drug traffickers run in you know, have contact with these groups, a lot of times it tends to be violent, right? So there's, there's violence going back and forth um, between these isolated groups, both perpetrated by them and also on them, right?
3: So I have a question about this remote sensing you yep. mentioned. Mm-hmm. So are you talking about drone technology or...?
0: We have not used drones uh, yet. Drones are being used uh, mostly to monitor deforestation and these other external threats that are encroaching on these people. Um but we have only uh to date, as far as I know, only used uh remote sensing from satellites. So mm-hmm. satellite imagery. Um and it's really um so previously, you know, in the last couple of decades, we most of what we know about these people are from overflights. So you know, small aircraft fly over, take pictures, and it's great because you can, you know, you get really nice close-up photography and can learn a little bit about these people. Um I've kind of been an advocate that we should stop doing the overflights because they're somewhat invasive. These mm-hmm. people will often come, times come out and shoot bows and arrows at the planes, or they run away in fear. So there's like this re, kind of negative reactions going on, uh, which you don't have with satellite imagery, right? Because it's right. completely non-invasive, tends to be much cheaper as well. Mm-hmm. And for a scientist, it's really nice because you can use this imagery – to make uh, systematic measurements of the size of the houses, the size of the gardens, and then we can track that. Um, We've been tracking them now for 15 years, uh, showing how these different villages, there's really only one good example that's actually growing in size. Mm -hmm. All the other ones tend to be quite small and have kind of Mm -hmm. maintained that small size uh, over the last 15 years that we've been able to track them.
1: Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Um, so, when when you said you you, you don't want contact um, in the past, how were those tribes? Or I guess I should rephrase my question. Um, how did we find out, or how did you or the, the scientists found out about these tribes in the first place? Were there was there a contact? Was there uh, I don't know some some stories about them or how did how did we first find out about them
0: yeah well it really kind of depends on when you know when we want to start this story i mean really we could go back to you know 1500 we have <laughs> uh-huh. you know early portuguese explorers i mean those were first contacts right right and that process essentially has been continuing on for the last 500 years and it's just sort of moved up farther and farther. All these groups that we're talking about now, that are still isolated, are way up at the tops of watersheds, really far away from, Really, these are the remotest corners of the earth, really. Um, and so we've known about them from a variety of reasons. I guess um, we know uh, some of the early explorers really going back centuries are making, making some mentions of these people in the same areas that we see them today um, There was the big, you know, rubber broom, rubber boom in the 1800s and people were getting forced out. And these are probably sort of remnant populations from those groups that were, um, had been mistreated for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in different ways. And so more recently, we kind of know more about their exact locations, primarily from these overflights. Mm -hmm. And occasionally there's just encounters on the ground that get reported in the press or something like that. Right. So it's a variety of sources, um, And that's what I love so much about this remote sensing is we don't have these costs of the overflights and these encounters on the ground, which could be spreading epidemics, which are probably the biggest threat to these people. Mm -hmm. Um, So remote sensing is just great in so many ways and that we can really get an idea exactly where these people are, whether or not they're growing or not um, without having these costs associated with actually making direct contact.
1: I guess following up on that that question, then how do you know That you're dealing with different tribes, that it's not the same, just like isolated groups, like families or what have you. Um, How do you know they're different if you're only observing them from up above?
0: Yeah, we're kind of making some guesses here. I mean, there are quite a few good examples where... Let's take the Yanomamo, because they're a pretty well-known example, probably the most wide-read ethnography and anthropology. Lots of students have read the, the Yanomamo book. There's something like twenty to 30,000 Yanomamo on the border between Venezuela uh, and Brazil. And if you think about that, so we know a lot about these, these contacted Yanomamo, yet there's also one tiny group, an isolated Yanomamo village that's still out there, we think. Uh, we've been tracking them again for 15 years. You know, it's probably only fifty to hundred people. They're clearly Yanomamo. You look at the style of their their houses. You know, it's in it's in this circular format. These are Yanomamo, um, but you can talk to all the neighbors, the neighbor in Yanomamo, and they don't have contact with these people, right? They might know about them, but that's you know that's all the information we have, right? Uh, so you can say, all right, these are isolated Yanomamo, and then there's also the contacted Yanomamo, mm-hmm. and so okay. f- for most of these isolated groups, there's something similar their close neighbors have made contact for who knows maybe a, a really long period of time so we know a lot about them we can go and talk to them and visit them but they're still they' you know closely related groups that are still out there that are, have become isolated I think in a lot of cases just sort of ran away in fear they're afraid of the outside world mm-hmm. um, and so they're kind of hiding tribes in a sense right? Okay.
3: so um, I guess I have a kind of I don't know how to ask this question. (laughs) Um, So when you're looking at these homes or these, these yards, these fields, how do you know when you're looking at like an anecdotal evidence, instead of looking at the tribe as a whole, how do you distinguish one thing that's happening? Like one crazy guy from the tribe as a whole? Do you, Do you uh, look at it over time? Do you look at it by a number within a certain amount of time? Yeah, I mean,
0: we we can't really say too much about individuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, the nice thing about the overflights is you actually can see people, and you Mm -hmm. can potentially do some type of facial recognition.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: You can look at, you know, differences in, say, body painting between men and women and things like that. So we're not able to do that with the remote sensing that we have. You know, we're usually looking at, like, 50-centimeter resolution. So what you Mm -hmm. can see are basically just the houses.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sometimes I can convince myself, it looks like you're looking at a shadow maybe <laughs> of a person, but I think that's stretching it. So really it's just the house and these fields, right? So it is true. I mean, that that is the only evidence that we can, we can look at, but we know, I mean, you can tell when they leave because the houses fall in and the gardens oh. start to overgrow. Mm-hmm. In fact, this Yanomamo example I was talking about, those people just recently left in 2015, you look at the imagery, and their, their gardens have become overgrown, the villages overgrown, the mm-hmm. houses have fallen down. So they've gone someplace else and we're still trying to figure out where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're right. Uh, the evidence that we have really about individual behavior is quite limited, but we're, we're kind of stuck with only being able to measure these kind of rough scale things. But those are probably a good indicator of how many people there are, right? The right. bigger the fields, and we have a pretty good handle on uh, the number of people you fit in these longhouses and the... The number of people you can support given the size of a certain uh, garden, mm-hmm. and so that's how we make estimates. All right, we're probably looking here at a group of say fifty or one hundred, and at the large end, this, this group I was saying that's growing, they're probably around four hundred people, and they've kind of split in two. They kind of have this fissioning process over the last fifteen mm-hmm. years, or moving apart, and that group, they're the one one example that's really doing really well. It's a growing group. It's large, right? So. Yeah, you're right. We don't, we can't say much about individuals, but we can say something about the, you know, that's a proxy for the size of the group and mm-hmm. track that through time, which I think is really exciting.
3: Oh, definitely. So uh, this group that I'm sorry, you said it was 15 years that you saw this group dividing yeah. into two, this larger growing group. Yeah. So have you been tracking them over this? past 15 years yeah, or I mean,
0: is that something? Yeah. Up? So my project really, I only got started in really doing this systematically in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's nice starting around 2000 is we have satellite imagery that's readily available of resolution that's high enough that you can start to mm. track these areas. So what we do is go back to this early imagery around 2000 and say, oh, look, there's these interesting clearings that are right in this similar area. And then we can see how they've moved through time. And yeah, over the 15 years, this group, which was quite close together, like talking about maybe just a few kilometers apart, several villages, Mm -hmm. they've now moved to almost like 20 kilometers apart. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the group overall is growing quite nicely. So they've gone from maybe only 150 people, rough estimate to now around 400 total, probably Mm -hmm. 200 in each segment. Right. Um, And, this group. That so is a
1: lot. There's yeah.
0: quite a few people. That
1: is a lot. Yeah,
3: and Especially for isolation. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: And they, they really are. They they really stand out because all the other groups seem to be much smaller and aren't growing. So there's something really special about this group. I mean, not only have they gone through this fissioning process, which is indicative of growth, right? Their fields have been growing immensely. Um you look at how frequently they're raiding their neighbors, uh, mm-hmm. so both indigenous and these Brazilian settlers that are nearby, everyone's afraid of them, right, because <laughs> there's a lot of them. They're habitually coming and trying to steal things, right? Um, you can also look at uh, it there's a type of remote sensing that looks at uh, evidence for fires, mm-hmm. and it's the only group that they're yeah, uh, cutting down large enough gardens and burning them that these fires are registering uh, with remote sensing. Wow! All the other groups, you, you don't see any evidence of the fires. That's not they're not burning, but they're just too small to actually register on the satellite. And if you do the overflights over this group, they come out and shoot at you. They shoot at the airplane. <laughs> All the other groups, they run away in fear. Right? So there's something really kind of I think interesting and special about this group. They're growing. They're very yeah. They're aggressive. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they're they're probably sort of in terms of a viable population, kind of the best example of an isolated group that we have. I'm worried about the other groups much more because I'm afraid they're sort of hovering around extinction, which is mm. which is uh, bothersome for sure.
1: All right, okay. Well, I think that's a good uh, stopping point for now, and we're going to go on our first break, and we'll be right back with more stuff. Um, this topic that is super interesting, I have a ton of questions, so we'll be right <laughs> back. Right. This is... Uh, yeah, we'll go on a first musical break, and then we'll be right back here on The Big Electron, KCOU 88.1 FM. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. We have a very interesting topic. Uh, we have... Professor Robert Walker from the Department of Anthropology and he's telling us about his research which involves isolated tribes and uh, isolated indigenous uh, tribes and mostly South America. Um, And again, if you have any questions for him or you want to chip in into the conversation, you can contact us here on studio at 573-882-8262 or our Facebook page where we are the Big Electron. So you were talking about this, um, the tribes, where are exactly, you mentioned the Amazonian. Um, so are, are they all in the Amazon? Are, are they like Brazil area or are they like all throughout South America? How many of these are?
0: Yeah, so it depends a little bit on who you talk to. If you talk to me, I would say we got probably 50 confirmed indigenous groups that are still isolated that are, if you look at a map of, lowland South America. They're sort of around the outside of the Amazon basin. So and the reason is they're the ones at the very tops of the watershed. So there's like a, a giant ring you can make around the Amazon basin. That's where these 50 groups are. And so yeah, they're all lowland South America. And there is one additional indigenous group in the Andaman Island, one particular Andaman Island called North Sentinel, North Sentinel Island. Uh, In the Indian Ocean, and there is an uncontacted group there, or we should call them isolated because there has been some contact. People have thrown them coconuts and there's been, they've killed a few fishermen. There's been (laughs) some contact, right? But there hasn't been the same kind of thing that we're talking about, this sustained, peaceful contact. Uh, So, yeah, I guess we could say 51, even though some people push that number up to around 100 groups in in Lowland South America. But there you got to include lots of these unconfirmed cases, right? So kind of hearsay groups that may or may not exist. And I've uh, tried to track down the actual sources on these. And a lot of them don't seem to be very credible. So in terms of credible evidence for isolated groups, I'd put it at 50 or 51. <laughs> if you count the Andaman Islands. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that is a big number if you think about it. I mean, even yeah. though you're saying that they're they're like small groups, most of them, that's still like quite a few people that are have been managed to stay away from society, I guess.
3: Right, and it's mostly geographical barriers, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's one way to think about it. They, you know, so there's a really clear ecological signature that you can find, you can you know sort of show uh, with these satellite images in a really nice way that they're always up at the very tops of these watersheds. Mm-hmm. They're up off the major rivers, right? And that's where in the Amazon basin, a lot of the, the traffic is going on is up and down these larger rivers. And if you get up into these little tiny streams, you can no longer get boats up there efficiently, right? At least in uh, uh, several seasons of the year. And so that that's kind of their uh, – they use that, I think, to sort of uh, – maintain this isolation, right? And they're, if you're up in between rivers and they can kind of choose, you know, to come out and maybe steal some things or have some interactions with their neighbors and they can quickly get away
2: mm-hmm.
0: and go back to hiding up in the tops of these watersheds, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Another question that I had was, and I don't know if you know this, do they have their own language, their own tongues or...
0: Yeah, so probably of these 50 groups... Um, The vast majority are actually all in the same language family, um, Mm -hmm. which is called Pano. And there are a bunch of contacted Pano languages that have been well studied. We know their language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these groups, um, a lot of them are probably really closely related to languages that we already know about that have already been studied by linguists and anthropologists. Um, And you get cases like the Yanomamo, like we... Like, there's already a Bible in Yanomama, and we have books on Yanomama. Um, so, we kind of know everything there is to know about this language, but there's still this isolated group that's still doing their own thing of Yanomama, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, culturally and linguistically, I mean, we don't expect to find all that much different things um, than we don't already know, right? By studying their neighbors. Uh, it's just. Really fascinating that there's been these groups that have been able to maintain this isolation from the outside world, right? And really living in some ways, maybe, you know, in a direct analogy to what life was like before 1500, right? Before the Europeans showed up, right?
3: So reaching out to these cultures, to these tribes, I guess if they weren't hostile, would you consider going... And Absolutely
0: seen them? <laughs> not. Uh, it's it's a really dangerous thing. So people, there's been lots of failed contacts that have happened through the years. Uh, say a government team or missionary teams, and everybody gets slaughtered. Oh, you know, wow. oh, so wow. that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I think you know, especially looking at this group, this is one that seems to be extremely hostile. This group that's growing. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they, they basically have a shoot on site policy to Um, the outside world, right? So what you have to do, if you are going to make contact, you have to do it slowly. Um, And there's a kind of a tried and true method here where you first start to leave out presents. You let them know, okay, look, we're giving you machetes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're giving you mirrors. We're giving you clothes. We're going to hang them, hang them for you so you can come and get them, right? Just make it very clear, like we're the ones giving you these presents Mm -hmm. and slowly, you know, from a distance, uh, hopefully, have someone that speaks the same language or a similar language. You can you can yell out, "Hey, we're the one giving you these presents. Mm-hmm. We're friends. Please don't shoot us." And then hopefully, through time, someone will be bold enough to come out and clearly show that they're gonna accept your friendship. They take the gifts and will you know strike up a conversation. All right, and that that's what we call that's a momentous moment there, right? Mm-hmm. Where you get uh, what you call the the beginning of a peaceful contact, right? So the hostilities have hopefully ended and we've entered into this peaceful contact that then usually goes on for, you know.
1: That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) That is very cool. And I, I, going a little bit uh, more broad, um, so you you focus on this isolated um, uh, indigenous societies. Um, When people are studying... Indigenous groups in other parts of the world and they have direct contact. Is, is, is this something that they do? Like what you just described, like, okay, we're going to give you gifts and then we're going to show you that we're friends and then you establish the contact or is it like less, like, I don't know, like you need to spend less in order to hmm. reach out to them. Uh, will they accept you right away or does it depend on every...
0: It really depends on okay. sort of the history of these groups, right? Um, you know, like say you want to do work on the Sanaman Island, or if any with any of these isolated groups, that you have to go through this long process of actually making friends. But if you're talking about doing research with indigenous groups, um, you know, around the world, the vast majority will have made contact for long, long periods of time. Mm-hmm. It is still really good to show up with gifts.
2: <laughs>
0: um, you know, you want to you show that you have good intentions, right? That you're not going to do any harm, and bringing gifts is a great way to do that. Also, bringing wife and kids and husband, you know, bringing the family also helps a lot because mm-hmm. people can identify that. You're not there to do something malicious, right? You're just there to learn about their culture, um, so yeah, developing these, yeah, these social relationships mm-hmm. with people, I think is really important uh, at the beginning, just, you know, integrate yourself into the community and show them like, Hey, I'm going to contribute some stuff and uh, please, because most places you're going to have to be taken care of by whoever you're living with, right? Mm-hmm. At least to some degree. And then learn the language that can take a year or Years, longer. Sorry. right? So it can be a really long process, but it's definitely really rewarding. You know, you get to, um, you know, essentially, you know, immerse yourself mm-hmm. into a completely different lifestyle, which I think to me has been kind of the most, you know, I think about the moments in my life that have been kind of the most just, wow, opened up all my horizons. Mm-hmm. It's that moment where you almost feel like you belong in a culture that is completely different than your own, right? Which is, I think, a really interesting uh, experience for mm-hmm. people to have, right?
1: Okay. So you've had that experience, Um Yeah.
0: I've I've spent quite a bit of time. Uh, so as a graduate student, I got started my very first summer. My advisor took me down to Paraguay and we worked with this group called the Ache and the Ache are really fascinating. They made contact, uh, sort of around 1970. So I was, I was there like around 2000. So they had already made contact for like 30 years, Mm -hmm. but still, um, you know, it is just a completely different world and they would still, uh, they actually traditionally didn't have any agriculture so they, mm-hmm. they were what we call nomadic hunters and gatherers traditionally and they still go off on these treks into their they have a large reserve that they can still go out and do hunting uh and gathering trips and they would go off for sometimes up to a month mm-hmm. and going off on these trips where you just don't have any you don't bring any food with you or if you do it's gone with a few days and everything you're going to consume in those you know couple of weeks It's just stuff that, well, I was completely worthless, of course, in the forest, but (laughs) relying on them to be, you know, hunting and gathering Mm -hmm, all our mm -hmm. food for that entire time. It's, it's a pretty amazing experience.
1: And you brought gifts, I suppose. Brought gifts. Okay. okay. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, you're going to have
0: to take care of me when we're in the forest, but (laughs) I can bring you some, uh, you know, nice jackets from the U.S., right?
1: How how long were you there? (laughs) How long were you with us, uh? Tribe. So
0: with the Ache, I was there, I, I started off doing like, like three month stints every summer. Okay. And then I was lucky to get a nice fellowship from the from the National Science Foundation. I spent uh, really almost a two year period, pretty much straight. I went from Paraguay into Brazil mm-hmm. and uh, spent a whole bunch of time with a bunch of different groups in Brazil. And that's where I first started hearing lots of stories and getting interviews with people about uh, these sightings of these isolated groups. Uh-huh. And really started to get into that, well, this interesting question of, well, these people out there, are isolated, how are we gonna learn more about them? You mm-hmm, know?
3: Mm-hmm. That is so cool. That, that must've so cool. been such an experience. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was, it was really amazing, very, very cool.
3: So um, while we were on break, you mentioned that there's a big debate, uh, I guess, constantly going on with an anthropology um so these these tribes that you're talking about that are smaller maybe on the verge of extinction um and isolated and isolated yes Mm -hmm. uh do you reach out to them is that is that interfering is that altering their way of life Mm -hmm. but i mean if they're sick let's say, that you have a vaccine that could help them. Yeah,
0: who's going to mm-hmm. help them, right? Right. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's been this a bit of a debate that's really kind of gotten going relatively recently. Um, so if you look at United Nations, they have documents that say these people, you know, the reason they're hostile, they want to be left alone, right? So we can call them that the sort of leave them alone policy. Mm-hmm. United Nations says it, Brazil says it, Peru says it, Colombia says it all these governments, and you look at most non-governmental organizations like survival international, there's a bunch of them that sort of work with, you know, same kind of stuff I do with satellite imagery and things like that. And everyone, for the most part, most people say, hey, we should leave them alone. They, the reason they're hostile with the outside world is they have had a long history of bad experiences. Mm-hmm. Hey, shouldn't we just leave them alone? And it really is just me and my few colleagues that have begun to try and question this policy and then our, our reasoning is the following um, if if it were the case in a perfect world you know we had large territories set aside for these people mm-hmm. um and they were doing fine like like this one particular group that is growing that seems like uh, that's a really nice outcome i'm okay with leaving them alone but unfortunately they're the one exception mm-hmm. i think almost all i would say all but this one group for the most part are really tiny populations. They are struggling to survive in the face of all these external threats that are coming in from the outside. Um, And probably the spread of disease epidemics is probably enemy number one, Mm -hmm. along with outright violence and other things, just basically getting displaced from these areas by this encroaching colonization, right? So these groups on the edge of extinction, and we know that. I'm tracking them with the satellite imagery. I can tell they're tiny and they're not growing. Mm the worry there is okay if you say we should quote leave them alone we're not really leaving them alone are we you know who's making all these contacts or all these people that right. do not have the welfare of these people in mind at all mm-hmm. loggers miners they would rather these these people are just an inconvenience for them right mm-hmm. so we do have we have support from from governments we have anthropologists. Um, people that would like to go and try and help these people, like you said, potentially bring vaccines, modern medicine, antibiotics, or oh, we could help them survive these epidemics, right? So there you get kind of this dilemma here. Well, okay, so uh, do we really want to just sit back and you know say, leave them alone, which means the people that care about them, leave them alone, but the people that are causing all this harm aren't. Um, I'm afraid at the end of the day, say we fast forward, 10, 20, 30 years, we'll be talking about maybe only one isolated group, right? Because the mm-hmm. others have gone extinct. Right. So I think you can make the moral argument, the logical argument that if you can do contact the right way, which is bring a healthcare team, bring people that can speak their language, uh, we could actually help save these populations from extinction. And then you might say, well, but it's going to change their culture. They're going to be, you know, that's true. But I think in terms of priorities, that the number one priority should be keeping people alive. And then secondarily to that is trying to preserve the culture, right? Because if the population dies, you've lost the culture anyway, right? Right. So uh, yeah, I think you can make the pretty good argument, at least we've tried to, that uh, there are cases where we should step in and try and save these people.
3: It's a really interesting debate.
1: It is a very interesting debate, uh, especially because I can see how some people are looking at the the, the mindset of of a scientist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if we say they are isolated tribes, mm-hmm. we need to see how they behave, and 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 as soon as we make any type of contact, then we might bring him diseases. We might bring them, you know, all this other stuff. And it's something that you mentioned was uh, epidemics that um, if these tribes are um, getting diseases or whatever, um, we can bring them to, uh, we can bring them healthcare to treat them and and, and save them. Now, how, how did they acquire those diseases in the first place?
0: Well, yeah, we've we've been studying this actually quite extensively because there's a huge, you know, ethno-historical record of these contacts that have gone on. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority have been quite devastating. So it's not uncommon for within the first couple of years of these uh, contacts that something like 30 to 40% of the population will die. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the average that's gone on through time. The thing, and that's what people use to say, hey, we should leave them alone because look how bad contact is. But the th- the thing is, uh, and you can actually show this statistically that mm-hmm. contacts have gotten better through time, and I interpret that as we've gotten a little bit better about bringing you know modern healthcare on these contacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we could do even better. I think we could get mortality to almost zero if you executed an, an you know a well done contact, well organized with the right medical team, the mm-hmm. right cultural translators, people that could really just pull it off. Right. So. You're going to get people get sick. People get sick. You know, measles is usually the big killer. And then these secondary uh, respiratory infections is mm-hmm. usually what ends up actually killing people. Um, but we can we can combat that, right? We, we can use antibiotics and even antivirals. It would be expensive because we're talking about places in the middle of nowhere and trying to get right. doctors to go there and stay a long period of time. Which reminds me that is maybe the most important thing is because if you have a medical team there for say a couple of weeks and like okay people look fine then they leave that's when disaster that's when usually starts. strikes right. Right. yeah right. so what you really want to do is have a long term presence mm-hmm. of modern healthcare professionals mm-hmm. and actually you know, um missionaries tend to do uh, in some ways some of the best jobs of this because they're the ones that are willing to spend long periods of time out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. A lot of times government officials or government workers don't want to. Anthropologists got to come back for the semester and teach, you know, so uh, missionaries have this nice advantage of both being well-funded and willing to spend long periods of time. I mean, really you want a continual outside presence because Mm -hmm. an epidemic can strike very quickly Mm
1: -hmm. and people
0: can start to die. Right. But so I think, So theoretically we can do a really good job of contact. There just has only been a few really good examples that have actually been pulled off. The vast majority of contacts through time have been pretty devastating, right? And I think that's why people are really leery about this argument we have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's really gonna take a lot of investment. I don't don't know if, yeah, it's just not clear unless you get buy-in from these governments um, whether or not it would actually work or not. But I think it's an important You know, debate to have because I don't want us to be, you know, coming back in a few years. Like, oh, okay, those Yanomamo that disappeared. Well, that's because they got wiped out by gold miners. Well, we could have, if we had stepped in, we could have prevented this, Mm -hmm. right? And, yeah, so uh, these kind of the things that keep me up at night worrying like, hey, we could be doing a much, we could be much more proactive in in trying to, um, yeah, ensure the long-term survivorship of these people, right?
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But that, that is so interesting. I can't it,
3: stop thinking about it like this, this sounds horrible. Is there as if there's somebody who's like, well, we have to not touch that we can't? Interfere in any way, shape, or form, and then if they die, at least we can look at their bones and <laughs> and study it from that point wow. of view. I, I know yeah. it was just like this horrible, like evil, science. evil scientists <laughs> right. that, yeah. that, that
1: that comes into place. Yeah, these bones—they're ulti- th-
0: not going to last very long in the Amazon. That's right. the problem. The, preser- mm-hmm. yeah, the preservation there is so bad that like, you have to get the bones pretty quick, or they're going to be gone. So,
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, it's th- we're interested about the humanity of it. Absolutely. That's what the we want to know, and the cultural stuff. stuff. Yeah, right, right. So yeah. we got to keep the humanity going to be <laughs> able to study that keep stuff. The alive.
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. To me, that's that's the first priority, right? Mm-hmm. Is survivorship of individuals, and then of groups. And uh, if their culture changes, I I'm afraid that that's almost inevitable. It's gonna change. I mean, we only have one planet here. It's only so big, right? And this uh, what we call civilization is reaching all last corners. I mean, we're talking about the last little tiny pockets, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's just a question of time until it gets overrun, right? right. And I just hope when it gets overrun that we, could, we actually did a good job of trying to keep these people alive as a, you know an identifiable group still, so they can maintain their language and the, mm-hmm. they can maintain the cultural traits that they really want to maintain but then also add in these other things that are really nice, mm-hmm. like the internet and vaccines. Right. Right. And who are we to say, Hey, no, you can't have that stuff. Cause you're an isolated group.
3: Right.
0: <laughs> to me, that right. almost, that's <laughs> that giving them, that's it's, wrong.
3: It's better to give them the option Absolutely. and let them reject it on their own. Absolutely. if they Absolutely.
0: And you can see what happens when people are given those options, they take it and right. they don't go back. Right. It's not, people aren't going back to the forest. I mean, I can't, there's not a single example. maybe, individuals for whatever Mm -hmm. reason go back to you know living off the land or something like that but you don't see groups saying oh yeah this civilization stuff that's not so good we're going to go back and live Mm -hmm. like we used to (laughs) several hundred years ago (laughs) no one's doing that right so it tells you something about all the advantages Mm -hmm. that this stuff you know clothes are great (laughs) (laughs) steel machetes are really nice (laughs) and uh so i don't want to go back to using um a rock Mm-hmm. Right, and bludgeoning trees when I want to cut them down, it's just much easier to have a chainsaw or a steel machete. And but we're really going to sit here and say, no, you can't have that stuff because you're an isolated group. Right,
3: absolutely. Right.
1: <laughs> that, is, that is very true. Mm-hmm. That is very true. The humanity, keeping the humanity in, mm-hmm. in the scientific world, I guess. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to go on our second musical break and we'll be right back to close up the show. You're listening to the Big Electron here on KCU eighty-eight point one FM. All right, welcome back here. Uh, welcome back to the Big Electron here on KCU eighty-eight point one FM. We're happy that you are listening to us in this very, very interesting topic: um, isolated tribes and in the Amazonian. Um, so, yeah, you were. I, I have a question. How does mm-hmm. How did you get interested in anthropology? Did you always wanted to study humans?
0: No, actually. So <laughs> I I got started uh, as an undergrad. I was doing engineering for like three and a half years, mm-hmm. and for some reason it just wasn't grabbing me. You know, I was kind of I was good at science generally, physics. You know, I was. You know, doing okay. And then I just started to branch out. I thought I'd branch out, take some random courses. And one of them was a prehistory course. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure in that class, my professor said something about, hey, did you know there's these groups down on the Amazon that have very limited contact with the outside world? And I just found that I had no idea like this even existed. And so I changed my major you know, decided to go to graduate school, and then yeah, the rest was history. I, I, that it was that course that really changed everything for me. So mm-hmm. that my mom used to drag me to archaeological sites when I was younger. <laughs> I think that probably had some early life uh, effects. So,
3: <laughs> so how did you? Um, when did you decide to become a professor and pursue that route? How did how did that evolve?
0: Yeah, I never really thought about it. Like, hey, I want to be a professor. I just always thought. Oh, I really like studying these different cultures, mm-hmm. um, and I just got really interested in, tr- you know, trying to put this interesting stuff I was finding out in the Amazon into publications. And then at some point I realized, oh, I'm getting a Ph.D. There really aren't any <laughs> other options here. I guess I'll be a professor then. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and do you like it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's good.
0: I mean, I definitely mostly enjoy the research side of it. I mm-hmm. mean, I really, I yeah, just. I can spend really long hours staring at satellite imagery, (laughs) turning the stuff into numbers and and writing papers. That is like what most sort of just... Yeah, it keeps me going, (laughs) Mm -hmm, right?
1: mm -hmm. And if if you... Could see him. <laughs> if you could see Professor Walker when he's talking. You could see his expression. It's kind of hard to tell it through the radio, but but it, we, we it, can tell you. You're, you're, you're very definitely excited, excited about it. About it. Very it. very it's excited that, about it. Sure. Yeah. Now, were you? Uh, so you say you were studying engineer in undergrad. So were you always drawn into science?
0: Yeah, I think um, that's that's a good question. So. Um, I, I think growing up, yeah, I mean, I always thought science was was really cool, um, but I just never really saw myself doing it. And then I got into engineering, and engineering arguably it's not, yeah, it's kind of a, not really a science per se, right? It's engineering. It's the application it's a, it's a
1: of science, thing. right? Right.
0: Um, and it wasn't until I think you know really get interested in anthropology but mm-hmm. I was like okay science of people right now this is something i could really <laughs> dig into <laughs> yeah. right
3: so do you have any advice for any of our listeners that might be aspiring anthropologists
0: yeah well i mean i usually just tell people maybe this is what everyone says that you just want you need to find that thing that just really you know gets you going right mm-hmm. what is your passion that something you can just feel yourself doing day in and day out right because you guys know, you know, being graduate students, <laughs> like, it's not all this great glamour, you know, discovery <laughs> every <not>. single <laughs> no. day. It's a, it really takes this, you know, really high level of dedication mm-hmm. um, on a really consistent, you know, years and years and years and years, right? I mean, really, it's going to be your whole life, right? Mm-hmm. So just finding that something that just, I got to know the answer to this question, right? Mm-hmm. For me, it's, I got to know... Uh, where these people are, how many there are, how can we study them use any available technology to find out everything we can about them and try and use this information to help these people That's what just really gets me going right So I think you know for the young scientists out there you just yeah you want to find what is that you just you got to know this about a certain organism or a certain mechanism or whatever it is you're ready to dedicate, your entire life to really find out these answers, because we know we're we're living in a really complex world. It's gonna take a lot to really, really, truly answer this stuff. So, yeah, it it takes the the passion and the dedication, I guess, it, to sum it up.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, it, it does.
1: It does, <laughs> especially when you're in grad school and you want to be.
3: Oh, man. Especially yeah.
1: these days. Huh? Especially, especially these <laughs> days. We probably well, shouldn't go there. Yeah, <laughs> no, we're, we're no. not going to go there. That's a We're, uh, <laughs> we're going to stop there. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic. And something that um, I also wanted to ask was anthropology. A lot mm-hmm. of times we see it classified as a social science. Mm-hmm. And other times we see it classified as part of the life or physical sciences.
0: Absolutely.
1: What are... Why why do we see that and, and what are sort of maybe this will help um, answer that question is what are the sub areas of anthropology and i, I would imagine they're different uh, but how are they different so that sometimes we see anthropology classified as a social science compared to uh phys- life or physical science
0: yeah well i mean this is because the field of anthropology is itself quite divided um, you have the humanistic uh, social science side also associated with postmodernism views um, that have become, I, I think it's fair to say, the majority. And then you have us over in the minority, uh, really all of Mizzou anthropology is very scientific evolutionary based. So mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, we would just f- feel just at home in a, you know, a biological, biological department or something mm-hmm. like that, right? So very life science. And in some places, those two are together in the same department. And in other places they've kind of split and then Mizzou just happens to be kind of a relatively small department. We're all very, you know, on this evolutionary side. So it really kind of depends on, you know, which, which uh, department you're looking at. And I think it's all valuable. Uh, You know, it's the study of humans and Mm -hmm. you got to come at that from a social science and a life science perspective, I think, to really get the full picture here. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of like it in some ways it's, Created a division, but at the end of the day, I think we need both. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely, because we need we need to study how humans developed or how we are developing and slowly dying, as mm-hmm. you're saying, this yeah. uh, isolated tribes. But yeah. also, we want to know what consequences that has that environment into cultural changes or Absolutely, into yeah. interacting with one another, or yeah. you know, all this. I don't know.
0: There's the cultural and side. There's the biological side. Right, right. You really can't take the culture out of the biology, and you can't take the biology the bio, out of the culture. Right,
3: <laughs> right. To me,
0: I almost like this word, biocultural. I mean, we're biocultural creatures, mm-hmm, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
0: par excellence. So, I, I think, yeah, to really, to really get at these big issues, we, we need to, yeah, we need to come at it from with all our tools,
3: right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely,
1: yeah. And one last thing that I wanted to ask is, how does an anthropologist get funded? Because oh. you mentioned all these trips and all yeah. this stuff.
0: Yeah, it adds up. <laughs> uh, so uh, we recently just got a National Geographic grant. National, Ge- National Geographic Society has been really interested in this project because mm-hmm. they like the remote sensing picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they really like That's things awesome. that have this geographic component. Uh, National Science Foundation uh, has does, does provide some support, even though these days it seems to be rather difficult. Um, and then we have some smaller things. wenner Foundation is a nice uh, – so several foundations out there.
1: Okay. Um, that i just interested in. Be,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they're more. specific uh, for anthropological mm-hmm. and field work uh, in particular, right? So that these are the people that we ask to try and help us g- get down to the field and mm-hmm. spend hopefully long periods of time down there if they let us, so –
3: Um, I have one question, kind of an extension of that. Do you get a lot of support, maybe not necessarily financial support, but support from the governments of the countries you're looking at?
0: Yeah, um, it's nice when you do, um, and I've uh, for a long period of time tried to develop these relationships with the Brazilian government. There's Mm -hmm. been a little bit of a pushback because they... Uh, yeah in particular, with this latest article saying that we should maybe think about contact they right. weren't uh, weren 't very terribly receptive to that idea unfortunately
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, but yeah i think uh it's it 's really good to develop some institutional ties to these uh, different government foreign governments um, and it's it 's really nice to have uh students occasionally that want to come come with you to the field and they're great because they speak you know they're fluent in portuguese or <laughs> spanish and they have great. you know lots of ties to the local communities a lot mm-hmm. of times and so those are those are really great connections to have yeah it's very rarely finan- financial mm-hmm. uh, usually we're trying we have to help support them uh to help us uh, but yeah it tends to it makes a i think a better environment you know research wise mm-hmm. and uh i think we should. Always strive to have more of that. Include uh, more local uh, support from institutions, students, or whatever. Um, I think it it helps create a better research team.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, that was this was great. Yeah. This, Thank was awesome. you, this was this yeah. was awesome. Thank you for being here. Um, and actually, you spoke at Saturday morning science yesterday. I did. Yeah. Uh, and we're trying to convince you to possibly come talk to. Science Cafe. <laughs> we'll see if that, <laughs> Okay, definite maybe if, if, that, if maybe. that happens. Uh, but thank you, thank you for coming. This was this thank was, you. was very interesting. That uh, no,
0: was great. Yeah.
1: All right. Um, so thanks for listening to the Big Electron here on KCU eighty eight point one FM. We'll be right. We'll be back next week um, at five p.m. Same time, same place. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.